Well, there's a Jewish parable that's told that there were two men, and one of them was an envious man, and one was a greedy man, and they met a king. One of you, said the king, may ask something of me, and I will grant it, provided that I give twice as much to the other. Well, this put the two men in a quandary. The envious man did not want to ask first, for he was already envious of his companion, who would then receive twice as much. Nor did the greedy man, since he wanted everything that there was to be had. Well, finally, the greedy man prevailed on the envious man to first make his request. This put the envious person in a difficult position. And so after much consideration, he asked that one of his eyes would be plucked out. You see, that is what is so twisted about envy. The envious are willing to suffer great pain as long as those, uh, as long as those that they envy suffer even more. So today we're looking at guarding our hearts against envy. If you've been tracking with us over the last number of weeks, we're doing a series on the seven deadly sins. And uh, I think each week I've heard this common rephrase going, well, that's not at all what I thought. And man, I feel a little convicted about that. We tend to push these things off, and certainly we may not go so far as the envious person in the parable that I just shared. But the reality is that we're all vulnerable to this vice, nicknamed the evil eye. That's why we want to talk about this morning warding off the evil eye. And I'll do it very similar to what I did last week. We'll first define it. So what is envy? So we kind of have a common understanding of that. Uh, We'll look at what envy isn't, uh, just to help us uh, to make some differentiation between some common misunderstandings. We'll look at some signs and symptoms of envy so that we can start to kind of look in our own hearts and see if that's uh, maybe uh, an indication of something that's going on in our hearts that we, uh, we ought to deal with. And then ultimately, the way we deal with it is um, warding off the evil eye and looking at some cures for envy. So first of all, what is envy? What is envy? Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the church fathers who made the list of the uh, um, seven deadly sins, he called envy sorrow for another's good. Sorrow for another's good. Aristotle on envy said, called it a disturbing pain excited by the prosperity of others. And so you get this sense that, that that this envious person becomes sad when things are going well for another person. You see, envy, in a sense, wants what others have, and in that sense, it's sort of related to covetousness. But if you can't have it, then you actually don't want the other person to have it either. Uh, Frederick Buchner, who also wrote about this, probably had one of my favorite definitions. He said, the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. The Bible also refers to envy numerous times, and so this morning we just read a, a selection of, those, of some of those passages, but we could have read a whole lot more. And if you just do a simple search, uh, if you have a digital Bible with, of the word envy, and you'll see the many places where it is listed, um, often amongst uh, many other um, pretty, pretty awful things. But it's perhaps the, the nuance of it is captured in what Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 15, 
when he instructs uh, the church at Rome to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And this, in fact, is the posture of followers of Jesus. That, that, that even if our, um, but if our, if our heart is infected with envy, we might actually see that the opposite of this is true. That we would actually then rejoice with those who mourn and mourn with those who rejoice. It's pretty sick and twisted, isn't it? Envy, in essence, delights in another person's misfortune. The envious person rejoices when things go badly for others. Now, probably quietly, they're not going to get up and and cheer and celebrate this, although I'm sure there were some Calgary fans doing that last night. But uh, because we don't want anybody to know just maybe how perverse our heart might be. And if things go well for someone, the envious person then actually feels sad. The Germans have a great word for this. Any German-speaking people here? Maybe a few? Schadefreude. Schadefreude. It means malicious joy. Dorothy Sayers calls envy the sin which hates to see other men happy. Joseph Epstein, an essayist, says, The envious person asks, Why does he have it and not I? And it can refer to almost anything. Looks, smarts, house, clothes, car, vacations. And the crazy thing about envy is that there will always be someone who looks better, is smarter, has a nicer house, wears nicer clothes, goes to nicer restaurants, drives a nicer car, goes on nicer vacations. And the focus of envy is often on what people have, But at the core of it, it's really that the envy is directed at who the person is or who they are. And and, and these things that people have usually say something about who they are, right? And so if you have a lot of these nice things, you're thought to be successful. You're thought to be superior in some way, that you might have some authority or whatever it is. And the envious person doesn't have those things. That is not who they are. And therefore envy starts to grip their hearts. Envy, we should note, is no fun at all. It's probably the only sin that doesn't really feel very good. I mean, other sins at least offer some pleasure, uh, albeit shallow and fleeting, right? You think about the sin of gluttony that we've already looked at, right? Uh, Eating a great meal, a big meal, can be actually very pleasurable. You might just suffer the consequences later and the ridicule of all your friends who actually heard the message on gluttony uh, a few weeks back. In fact, I believe envy makes a person downright miserable. Because this vice ultimately robs a person of joy, it ruins relationships, and it can drive a wedge between you and God. Consider the destructive and deadly outcome of Cain killing his brother Abel, all because God, the Bible says, looked with favor on Abel and on his offering. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 4. You can see how deadly envy becomes when in Matthew 27, we have record that the religious leaders killed Jesus because of envy. They wanted what he had. He was becoming popular. He was becoming famous. And they didn't want anybody kind of undermining their authority. Perhaps the writer of Proverbs gives us the best picture of this. Chapter 14 and verse 30. 
A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. If you take nothing else away from it, think about that. A heart at peace, a heart that is content. We'll talk a little bit about that. It just gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. You see, envy eats the person up from the inside out. In fact, there's plenty of research to back this up. Psychologists have found that envy decreases life satisfaction and depresses well-being. Envy is positively correlated with depression and neuroticism, and the hostility it breeds may actually make us sick, physically sick. So this proverb is not that far off, that that envy rots the bones. It, it, It infects our whole body and our whole being. Recent work suggests that envy can help explain, <clears throat> excuse me, our complicated relationship with social media. Surprise, surprise, right? Because it often leads to destructive social comparison, which decreases happiness. Well, that's a little bit of a summary of what envy is, but it's probably helpful for us to consider as all, also what envy isn't, what envy isn't. Os Guinness in his book, Steering Through Chaos, Vice and Virtue in an Age of Moral Confusion, writes about two popular misunderstandings of envy. He says, first of all, envy is not emulation. This is what he writes. He says, it is not simply a question of seeing that someone else possesses something that we desire and wishing that we possessed it too. Such a desire can become a positive aspiration that leads in turn to positive emulation, positive ambition, and higher success. In in other words, what he's getting at is that it's not so much looking up to another person or wanting to emulate them as much as it is bringing them down. I mean, we all have people that we look up to, people that we want to be like, people that maybe we'd like to emulate, but that's not envy. Desiring to have what others have crosses the line when I begin to wish that they actually not have it. And then finally working to make sure that they don't. That's envy. A second misunderstanding is jealousy. Jealousy is often used as a synonym for envy, but really jealousy is much more distinctive. Jealousy is the passionate effort to keep what is one's own by right right? So the jealous have something or they have someone that that they love and they don't want to lose it. They want to hang on to it. We're jealous about that. The envious are the have-nots. In other words, they have nothing to lose and everything to gain from another person's loss. And so it's right for me to be jealous for my wife. God himself is described as a jealous God. We are his people, and he wants to keep us. He wants us for himself. He's jealous over us, is a song that we, we sometimes sing. We would never say that God is envious, but he can be a jealous God. Now, envy is a popular and common theme in lots of popular culture particularly in movies. You can watch it even in in kids' movies, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, to The Incredibles, to, to, um, what's another one? Um, uh, Sorry, lost, slipped my mind, but there was some that I was thinking about. I'm I'm old enough to remember in real time the uh, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan drama in the early 90s. Anybody else remember that? Okay, 
Okay, there's a few shaking heads. You're all over 40. Um, those of you who are under 40 probably uh, don't remember this as well. But here's what happened. They were rivals. They were kind of ranked number one and number two in U.S. figure skating. And the full story isn't fully out. There's a movie made just a few years ago um, about this where um, Tanya Harding's boyfriend basically sets up to take out Nancy Kerrigan's knee just before the Olympics so that Tanya could uh, beat her main rival. The root of that action, the sin or the vice that's at play there, is envy. Now, almost every source that I read to prepare for this message used the example of Antonio Solari's envy of Mozart in the movie Amadeus. And uh, I didn't have the time to sit down and watch it. I haven't watched it, but I read enough about it to realize that um, Solari, this musician, was the court musician in Vienna. Have anybody seen it? Is, am I going to explain this? Guys, okay, I'm going to take... Not very many. Maybe you should all go home and, and watch it this afternoon and spend a nice relaxing afternoon on the couch. But listen, he, Solari was, was, a, was a court musician. He worked hard at his craft, writing melodies that were nice and choral pieces that were fine and instrumental works that were good. And he knew that in this craft of, of composing that God had blessed him. And as a young man, he had prayed fervently to God. He said, let me make music that will glorify you, Father. Help me lift the hearts of people to heaven. Let me serve you through my music. Great aspirations. But then came the boy wonder, the child prodigy, young Mozart. And he dazzled the crowds, playing music as if it was second nature to him. Complex melodies came from his dancing fingers. His melodies were complex and fun all at the same time. Songs that soared till they seemed to bring heaven right down to earth. But here's the catch. Mozart was such an obvious sinner. He was immature, vulgar, and obscene. He made off with the ladies every chance he could get. And Solari grew green with envy. How could life be so unfair, he asked. He was the servant of God. Why should Mozart be blessed with such talents? Soleri lived a pious and obedient life. Why should Mozart traffic in all these worldly pleasures and still get ahead? How did he get all the fame? And Soleri spent a lifetime of hard and tedious work. And why should it all come so easily for this youthful Mozart? And the story continues until Mozart dies a mysterious death and Solari's eyes gleam. And in the dramatic climax, Solari sits in an insane asylum, no less, where he curses God for denying him the kind of talent that blessed young Mozart. Because Solari was filled with envy. He would have been wise to heed the words of Proverbs 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, right? But always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Another illustration of envy is found in the Bible in the story of King David and Saul in 1 Samuel. David, uh, sorry, Saul was the, the first king of Israel. But the kingdom was taken away from him because he disobeyed God. We did a series on the life of David last, last summer. And David comes along and he was secretly anointed as the next king by Samuel. 
But for the time being, Saul remained on the throne. And the whole narrative of 1 Samuel shares this unfolding drama. At first, Saul is kind of is kind and friendly to David. David plays music in his court. But <laughs> excuse me. But after David kills Goliath and Saul hears the women singing David's praises, Saul gets very angry and the Bible says he kept a close eye on David. See, he was watching him with his evil eye of envy. Okay, so we have a sense of what envy is, hopefully what it isn't, and a few illustrations and examples that we might relate to. And few of us would experience the extremes probably of Antonio Soleri or King Saul. But here is where all of these vices become so insidious because they can also find their way into our lives and still be very subtle about it. So how do we detect if there might be seeds of envy in our own hearts? What are some of the signs and symptoms of envy that we might um, just note and go, hmm, never thought about that in that way? Again, the essayist uh, Joseph Epstein, who I quoted earlier, says that envy makes us look, quote, ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. James 3.16, just after the first three verses that were read for us early, the response is this then, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. And this verse reminds us of something that we've been saying about these sins all along. It's not that they are somehow the worst of all sins, but that they're considered these capital sins because they're, they're root sins or principal sins from which all other sins arise. And so some signs and symptoms of envy. Number one, comparison. Comparison. When we find ourselves comparing ourselves with others, we are in fact showing a symptom of envy. We're usually envious of people who are close to us or similar to us or maybe have the same talents as us. So musicians envy musicians and hockey players uh, envy other hockey players and pastors envy other pastors. This is why sibling rivalries within families can become so real because of that close proximity and that relationship. And why friendships are, are often um, harmed by, uh, by envy. And where do we see this comparison play out uh, almost ad nauseum in our world today? Right? Anyone want to take a guess? Any thoughts? This could be the kind of the interactive part of the sermon if you want it to be, but Facebook, Instagram, Right? We're scrolling through it mindlessly, looking at pictures. Yes, we want to maybe see what everybody's up to, but then we come across our friends and they're on another Hawaiian vacation. And it's 30 below outside. And we see the pictures and we might feel even a bit envious. Why do they have what I don't? I'm smarter. I'm more deserving. I'm better. I'm harder working. And we might find ourselves comparing, and maybe then we start to feel just a little tinge of resentment because that other person's life looks so much better, right? They're out living their best life. What do I'm doing? 
or at least it seems that way by the pictures that are posted. See, that's what Saul did with David, right? He compared himself. That's what Solari did with Mozart. And this kind of comparison, if left unchecked, can lead us to dark places. Saul's envy caused him to become completely irrational. And if you know this story, you'll know that he eventually then tried to take David's life on several occasions. We all compare. I used to hate sometimes going to pastor's conference because my last church, I grew it from about 280 to 160, and, uh, and it was really discouraging. And, um, and uh, you know, you'd go and the common friend, well, how are things going? And, I, and it's funny because I feel like we've kind of maybe, maybe in sort of the pastoral world, we've matured out of that a little bit and recognize that it's not, you know, just about numbers and those kind of things. But it's easy to compare. And it's easy to think that, you know, maybe somebody has a, a better calling or a better placement. But we all can do it. Maybe we're not at the right school or we don't work for the right company. And we're like, well, why did he get that job and why didn't I? So we compare. And we've got to watch for that. Secondly, we criticize. You see, when the envious person is confronted by the blessings of another, they sometimes think they don't deserve it. And maybe that other person is, in fact, more educated or more attractive or wealthier. Maybe they're even a better golfer. But then we call into question their integrity. Oh, but he probably cheats, right? We criticize. We belittle. We use those kind of things to put other people down. Because, in fact, we're a little bit envious of of the success that they're having. Thirdly, complaining. And this is closely related to, to criticizing for sure. But instead of this sort of they don't deserve it, it's more about questioning the fairness of it all right? Someone is blessed in a, in a, in a way that, that we aren't, and we might protest a little bit. It's not fair, right? Why them and not me? And we have this sense of entitlement, and if that isn't somehow met, then we complain about it. Fourthly, being ungrateful. I think a lack of gratitude is a sign of envy. As one author puts it, envy is blind to its own gifts, and this is where it's particularly discouraging because what happens is, is we actually fail to see the goodness of God in our own lives. We're not thinking about what we have because we're envious. We're only focused on what we don't have, um, especially in comparison to what someone else has. And so that becomes the only thing that we can think about and, and, and um, ruminate over. You see, envy causes us then to actually miss God's goodness in our own lives because we're consumed with this resentment for God's goodness to others. Friends, that kind of ingratitude is dangerous and revealing to us. And the last symptom I'll share, and I'm sure there's others, is anger and hatred. Because in the extreme, envy will lead to hatred. This is Cain's envy of Abel, which led to the the first family feud and ultimately to the first murder. Genesis chapter 3 records the fall of of mankind, of Adam and Eve, and right in Genesis 4, we have uh, a brother killing his brother because of envy. And this is how relationships are destroyed. Envy, unchecked, moves easily to anger and then eventually hatred. So not good, is it? 
So what do we do about it? Let's lastly look at the cure then for envy. Because envy, like all other sins, is really a, a sickness of the soul. You know, the Bible talks about sin as, as a disease, and I think it's, it's, it's sometimes helpful for us to understand it that way. And this is the, the, the truth of the gospel, though, is that there's a cure for all sin. And that cure is grace, right? That, that, that cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cure is understanding that Jesus died for all of these sins, and he died for your sin, and he died for my sin. And there's absolutely nothing that we need to do to ever earn it other than to receive this free gift. And God offers to us in that salvation. But it's not just salvation for eternity's sake. It's, it's salvation for now. It's, it's recognizing that God's plan is for our goodness and, and the abundance and full life now. And if we have lives that are infected with envy, if some of those symptoms that I, that, I, that, I read, that I shared with you this morning, that you're kind of just like, you know, ew, that felt a little uncomfortable because I do that, or I think that, or I say that, and, and, and maybe there's a bit of that. And so my hope for you this morning is simply that you do what we've been trying to say with all these sins, is that you absolutely just recognize it and acknowledge it, and then trust God and the Holy Spirit to do what only God and the Holy Spirit can do. So that's where we start. Number one, we trust God and the Holy Spirit. Because we trust God to do a healing and purging work in our souls. That's why I said the best prayer we can pray about all of this is, search my heart, O God. Search my heart, God. It's it's yours to examine. You already know it. Just reveal what's there in my life. And then when things are surfaced, we, we embrace the gospel, not rec- recognizing that we don't need to try harder, but that we need to trust more that God is ultimately the one who does the work of transformation in our lives. This is the miracle of a lifelong process of being formed into the image of Jesus. And it's this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we're sensitive to his whispers and promptings of the Holy Spirit that challenges us and convicts us. You know, this isn't about going around hanging your head feeling guilty all the time. It's about acknowledging that because there's sin, there's grace. There's grace. But we don't stay there. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 1 to 3, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves, think of that language, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, there it is, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you go back, if you heard last week's message about growing up and maturing because we've tasted that the Lord is good and we have this insatiable hunger and thirst for Jesus, for his righteousness. And in this verse here in First Peter, it's pretty straightforward. He just says, get rid of envy and other stuff too, right? Malice and slander and all these other things, hypocrisy. And the wording that Peter uses here, again, is the image of taking off old, dirty clothes. It's the same idea that Paul uses with the put off and put on language in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. 
And as one writer puts it, this, he says, is the negative aspect of the sanctification process. That's what theologians call this process of becoming more like Jesus. Theologians call it both repentance, that is turning from sin, and mortification, putting sin to death. Both words are important and helpful, showing us that pursuing holiness involves both changing directions and, I love this, exerting holy violence against the vices that plague us. Exerting holy violence. What does that mean? It simply means that when we recognize the the, the symptoms of this sin, we realize that there's the presence of the sin, We recognize it, we admit it, we confess it to God, and we trust Him for forgiveness. But there's an intentional effort on our part to put it to death. And so if you engage in behavior, if social media, if you're on Facebook or Instagram and you feel that welling up inside, then you need to put it aside. You need to put it away. Anytime you find yourself in a place where you start to have these feelings of, like I shared about comparison and critiquing and, and complaining, and all these kind of things, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I got to stop that. I got to stick my foot on its neck and squeeze the life out of it. That's why we're looking at this series. This is what we have to do with all sin so that we can exert holy violence against these vices. So we trust God in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, first and foremost. Secondly, the practice of fasting. Again, not surprising, maybe, um, because fasting is probably the one practice that actually applies to every one of the seven deadly sins. You can fast from not only the sin in that sense, but the practice of fasting itself, to abstain, to, to, to just determine, I am not going to eat food for a, a set period of time. And the, the practice during Lent that we've been inviting the church into is Thursdays. Thursdays is a day of fasting. So you eat supper on Friday, sorry, <laughs> yeah, eat supper. Eat supper on Wednesday, don't snack in the evening, get up in the morning, don't eat breakfast, spend that time in extended prayer. Go through your morning, skip lunch, spend the time in prayer, and then break the fast at supper on Thursday. And this is a helpful practice to help form our hearts and protect our hearts by exercising what we all need to exercise is the no muscle. You see, we can fast from envy. We can say no to envy. When we sense even the slightest sign, we can tell, just say to ourselves, no, no. I, I don't want to go down that road. That's the get rid of language of 1 Peter 2. Uh, related to, to fasting is the idea of, of, of abstaining. And this is where it goes away from food and into other areas. And again, if social media stirs up bad things in your heart, then just put it away. Maybe there's TV shows that you, that you watch that you're like, oh man, oh, I got to stop. <laughs> I almost... I almost went somewhere that I would have been in trouble with this afternoon. Um, just kidding. Now she's, now she's really, I can just feel her eyes burning on me right now. Because um, I'm not saying this is, this is not a reflection of Tina at all. But, um, you know, we, we can watch, guys, you can watch car shows. Or you can go to car shows. And you may never drive those cars. But what it does is stir up in us this, this envy. 
I mean, even marketing is designed to make somebody look better, more attractive, more successful, and so that we're drawn to it. We've got to watch ourselves. So fasting is a good practice. Thirdly, I want to say we need to fight for contentment. Fighting for contentment. Um, Because what envy does is it breeds a discontent. And so the way we fight against discontent is to actually fight for contentment. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's writing to them, and near the end, he's thanking them for their gifts. He writes in chapter 4, verse 10 and 12, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I am in need. And this is what Paul says. This is his own testimony. He says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I want to say to you, contentment can be learned, that there is a secret of being content, and it is acknowledging the deep joy that we ultimately have in our relationship with Jesus, right? That, that in whatever our circumstances are, Jesus is still enough. Fourthly, just the act of being kind. Just being kind. Uh, in the passage that, uh, that was read for us by <clears throat> Lynn and, and Corey, in chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, who is wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility. Those are kind deeds, good deeds that comes from wisdom. But the opposite of that, he says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth, because such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And as I shared earlier, verse 16 goes on to say, because wherever their envy is, that's where you'll find every evil practice. And so we deal with envy by trusting God by fasting, by fighting for contentment, by being kind, because envy causes us, in fact, to compete with others. Instead of that selfish ambition, we think of others more highly than ourselves, and we extend that kindness. And yes, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. This is, again, a work that the Spirit does in our lives, but we can exercise being kind as well right? It it, it might mean something as simple as, if my desire is for your success, if I pray for your success, if I cheer you on so that you would be successful, that ultimately then when you're successful, I can take great joy in that when I seek it for another's good. And it becomes so liberating. And lastly, I want to say we need to be thankful. Be thankful. And this is not just for what you have. Because the fact is, we all have more than we probably even realize, but we all put it on the scale of sort of relativity, and we look at people that have more than us. And that's something that we already have to stop. That's in the comparing and and the lack of contentment. But I want to say that I think what really helps with envy is that we're thankful for who we are, who we are that we're thankful that we are beloved children of the King, that you are a beloved child of God, 
and that you have received God's unconditional love, that love that is just for you. And, and our aspirations in life and our ambition should be to live into that reality, to be all that God wants you to be, not in comparison to who someone else is. You see, the envious have a sense of entitlement. They live, they go through life as though they are owed something. But when we can create a heart of gratitude where we can regularly practice gratitude, we just celebrate God's goodness in our lives. We stop looking at what others have and focus on what we have and ultimately who we are. If we would get that, I think it would help us understand that we don't need to be envious of other people because we have everything we need. It's like the song we sang, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou am my inheritance now and always. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Follow the instructions of Paul writing to the Philippians that we do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but that we would be people who in humility consider others as more important than ourselves. That you would help us be people who look not only to our own interests, but rather to the interests of others. That in our relationships with one another, we would have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning take our eyes off others, who they are and what they have, that you would help us put our eyes on Jesus that we remember that today your goodness is actually revealed to us in Jesus. Your unconditional love is demonstrated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, I pray for my friends here this morning that if there was some sense of conviction, some thing that was revealed by your spirit in their own lives in relationship to this topic today. I pray that they would confess that to you. And maybe even just do that right now. Lord, I'm sorry for comparing myself to others. Lord, I'm sorry for criticizing others and thinking that it's not fair and somehow others don't deserve it. Confess those things. And know this, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and willing and able to forgive us our sins. So yes, Jesus, You are enough. You satisfy our deepest longings. Help us to remember that always and not be so caught up in what we have in relationship to what others have because we have you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.